Um, it is true that I constantly, uh, for some of my uh, socioeconomically disadvantaged patients, um, one of the things they always say is, you order this test, but I can't find time to do it uh, because they take three jobs. I discussed with my chairman and I said that I think there is a fair amount of chance I can save him. Uh, there is some significant risk. Uh, he may die on the table, which may affect our statistics. But my chairman was very supportive. He said, if you save a life, Dr. Yang, go save a life. back to another episode of the No Easy Answers podcast, where we talk to experts from a variety of different fields to learn about various professions and potential career paths as we begin our journeys as incoming college freshmen in choosing and pursuing our own. Today, we are joined by a very special guest, Dr. Yiming Yang, who is an interventional cardiologist and has been a practicing physician for over 20 years. More recently, he has worked to treat COVID patients in hospitals as well, so hopefully his firsthand knowledge can shed some light on the current state and future of the pandemic. Today, I'm joined once again by Adam, and we're going to be asking Dr. Yang some questions regarding his work as a cardiologist, the medical field in general, and his experience with and thoughts on the pandemic. So we usually start off uh, just by letting our guests talk a little bit in general terms about what exactly it is they do for a living. So Dr. Yang, why don't you start off by giving the listeners and us a basic sense of what an interventional cardiologist is? Thank you, Eric. Uh, it's such a pleasure to be with you and Adam this morning. Uh, and also with your podcast uh, audience. Uh, I understand there's a very important uh, goal that you have in order to shed light on different career paths to young high school graduates uh, for your future careers. Uh, as you know, I have a 15-year-old boy uh, who's a little bit younger, but also probably is the same boat uh, as you could, um, people are. Uh, trying to figure out what to do with their lives. Uh, I can't say I have um, an overwhelming amount of experience, but hopefully I can shed some light on at least the medical career path uh, for your audience and your friends. Um, so I am an interventional cardiologist. Uh, so I'm a physician. Um, uh, I perform um, what we call angioplasties. Okay, so cardiology general is a disease entity or a specialty that deal with heart disease. And uh, I am a subspecialty in cardiology called interventional cardiology, which means that we don't uh, only treat patients with medications as most physicians do, but we also perform procedures. Um, I wouldn't call it surgery because uh, we're not trained as surgeons, we're trained as internists. But we do use uh, interventional means by that. We mean using devices in order to treat certain heart conditions. And the specific type of device that I use is called catheter, which is a big medical word for uh, a small plastic tube, a very thin and long plastic tube. We use that uh, going through patients' arteries and reaching patients at different organs, uh, most importantly, the heart, and trying to um, fix some of the uh, stenosis or occlusion, which means uh, clogging up the arteries in the patient. 
as you know, um, a specific disease type called coronary artery disease, which is clogging of the arteries that supplies blood to the uh, heart, is a very common condition in the developed world. Uh, and also uh, getting more prominent in the developing world as well. So this is a very effective means to treat severe blockages in the arteries. And in some instances, we save people's life in uh, things such as uh, acute heart attack. Um, that's because of 100% uh, stenosis or clogging of the artery. And we can unclog the artery and save people's lives. Uh, so that's essentially... Um, uh, my specialty, uh, but that doesn't mean that I do that uh, all day long. Uh, so uh, I generally see patients in the office as well, uh, about half the time, and the other half the time I perform angioplasty procedures. Uh, so that's what I do. Thank you. So is there one patient in particular that you remember very clearly, or that you've had a, like a a highlighted experience with? Uh, um, certainly we treat, um, you know, as Eric said, I've been in this profession for over 20 years. Uh, over the years, I've treated probably thousands of patients. I, I lost count. Um, there are many, many memorable incidences. And some of them are happy. Uh, some of them are sad. Um, uh, if you ask me to remember one, uh, one that I come into my mind um, is a 94-year-old gentleman, uh, probably one of the oldest uh, patients I have uh, treated. Uh, he came through our emergency room uh, with what looks like a small heart attack. And his heart function from our study looks very poor. And this is a gentleman who had had uh, coronary artery disease in the past, as a matter of fact, had a bypass surgery 30 years ago. Um, but this time when he presented, he was very sick. Um, uh, at that age, generally speaking, um, you know, a patient on deathbed almost, uh, we generally are not that aggressive usually. Um, uh, but his own physician uh, actually called me uh, personally and begged me to save his life. Uh, his word was, he's a very well and healthy 94-year-old. Uh, as a matter of fact, he just came back from a romantic trip to Prague with his 64-year-old girlfriend. Uh, he's, an author, he's an author. So, with, <laughs> but still, he's very sick. Um, the chance of his surviving is very small. And as a matter of fact, if I perform angioplasty on him, um, there's a fair amount of uh, possibility that he might die on the table. Uh, this wouldn't be good for him, and it wouldn't be good for me, because that would be a death number on my statistics uh, or on our uh, institution statistics. Uh, you might not know, uh, this, the federal government and the state track our quality, um, uh, whether you have a mortality uh, during surgery is one of the main uh, parameters they follow. So we certainly wouldn't want that um, uh, to be a bad number. Um, but um, uh, looking at him, um, I use my professional judgment. I think uh, there is a chance I can save him, uh, even though this is small. Um, so um, I discussed with my chairman, 
And I said that I think there is a fair amount of chance I can save him. Uh, there is some significant risk. Uh, he may die on the table, which may affect our statistics. But my chairman was very supportive. He said, if you save a life, Dr. Yang, go save a life. So I took him to the operating room and uh, his uh, own arteries are all closed down. Uh, his bypass, he had three bypasses, two of them completely closed. And the only remaining artery, he has a 90% blockage. Uh, so if that artery goes down, he's certainly dead. Uh, so, and that can happen during the procedure. If he closed down, he would die. Uh, so I use a special device to support his heart, uh, to give me some um, wiggle room in order to treat that artery. And within five minutes, I opened that artery. And uh, he uh, was lucky enough to survive and uh, left the hospital and came to see me in the office. Uh, when he came to see me, the question he wanted to ask me is, what shall I eat from now on? Um, so this is a very memorable experience for me because uh, he is probably the oldest patient I treated. Um, and it, it has a, a good outcome. But it illustrate a few points that I think sum up my experience in my career. Um, number one, in our profession, uh, you, we need to keep what is the most important in our mind and remind ourselves what is the most important what we do at all times. We can have a lot of noises and distractions such as, is it gonna affect uh, our statistic numbers if something bad happens? Uh, it's gonna look bad on me. It's gonna look back on the institution. Um, we sometimes need to keep in mind we're trying to save a life. As my chairman said, if you can save a life, go save a life. Uh, the second thing is um, that he came to see me at the age of 94 uh, after bypass surgery before, after he had had these um, you know, horrible disease. Uh, he is now reminded the, important, the importance of prevention. Unfortunately, it's probably a little too late. And uh, these days our technology has advanced so much that I could actually use advanced device to temporize his condition and fix his heart and save his life. Uh, our technology is such that we can keep people alive for a long time. Um, but it's very costly. Uh, and also, uh, even though we can save people's life, I wish I knew this gentleman 20 years before I met him this time and really uh, start him on a good prevention course so that he wouldn't end up on my table in, uh, in such dire condition. Um, so uh, as physician, uh, after practicing for 20 years, I start to realize there's much I can do, but there's also much that I, or we as a profession needs to do not just treating disease, but also preventing disease. And we're woefully uh, inadequate in that second department. So, um, Dr. Yang, you mentioned that uh, as a physician, you always need to keep in mind the ultimate goal, which is to save lives and help people. And you also mentioned how rewarding of an experience that can be. So I was wondering, when you realized that being a physician was what you wanted to do and why you ultimately chose to become a physician, especially with it being such a demanding job. And also I was wondering if
familial or societal pressure was ever a factor in your decision? That's a very good question. It will be an interesting story because my parents are actually physicians. So I grew up actually uh, around families who are physicians. Um, so, but as a matter of fact, my parents actively discouraged me from becoming a physician all along uh, because uh, they, they were physicians in China and they said physicians are very overworked and very underpaid, uh, very stressful life. Um, so they wouldn't want me to go into medical field. Uh, so from the very beginning, I, I told myself, I don't know what I want to be, but I'm not going to be a physician. So uh, when I was about your age, or maybe a little bit younger, I told myself, I'm a STEM person as well. So I told myself I would be an engineer because that was what in vogue at the time, uh, double E major. Um, so uh, going to senior year from junior year in high school, I was all set to go to uh, a you know, technology school and major in double E. Uh, until I had an experience as an exchange student um, and learned a little bit about different cultures. And uh, through that, I realized uh, uh, I am a people person. I really want to interact with people. And I wasn't sure a double E major being an engineer will offer me that opportunity to be uh, in touch with many people. Uh, so, um, I switched careers and uh, I applied for medical, you know, uh, college and, and, and uh, um, I would take me on a path towards medical school education. Um, so um, it, it, it wasn't to me that I wanted to save people's life and I thought it was a noble profession, therefore I chose medicine. Uh, it was more uh, a inner calling that I couldn't really explain uh, just what kind of person I am and what I wanted to do, uh, what I think uh, will best suited me that um, uh, led me to uh, this profession despite actually uh, familial and societal pressures. <laughs> um, so I guess if there is a lesson, uh, at least for me, is that I think we all kind of know who you are and what you really want to do, uh, despite a lot of dis different distractions or pressures from either friends, family, or societal, uh, there's always industries that is in vogue, um, and you may be persuaded to pursue one or another. Uh, but ultimately, I think you want to listen to your inner voice of what uh, you think about a particular career path mean to you, um, whether that is uh, right for you. Uh, uh, I think if you listen to your uh, inner voice, uh, I think most likely you will be fine. Do you think that there's a place in medicine for people who have doubts that they should be in medicine? Uh, yes. Uh, um, throughout my career since medical school, I have met many of my friends and colleagues who uh, 
Some of them are like me, didn't know that they want to be a doctor, uh, ended up being very successful in their career. There are people who thought they wanted to be a doctor, ended up quitting medicine. Um, I think uh, it, it goes either ways, but um, um, I think it's a journey uh, for everyone. Finding yourself uh, growing up probably doesn't stop in high school. It's gonna probably go on uh, to at least your mid thirties to forties. Um, so uh, even if you didn't know whether this is the right thing for you, as a matter of fact, uh, in my personal experience before you're 35, 40, you're never hundred percent sure whether something is right for you. Um, but um, there are things you do know about yourself, uh, uh, whether you will be happy, uh, for instance, uh, making money, whether you'd be happy uh, interacting with people or helping people, whether you'd be happy solving problems, uh, whether you would be happy um, uh, devote yourself to uh, something bigger than you. Uh, those are the things that you have an intuitive sense, I think. Um, and if you want to go into medicine, in my opinion, there are a few things that are important. Uh, number one, um, you do want to uh, uh, help other people beyond uh, your immediate interest. Uh, you have to have a general uh, sense that's your inclination. Um, however, that by itself is not, not enough to sustain you through a very gruesome career. Um, the second thing is at some level, you, you have to be someone who wants to deal with people. You want to interact with people. If that's not something you want to do, your career path will be narrowed in medicine. Uh, the third thing is um, physicians are generally well off, but uh, very few of us are, are, are rich. Uh, uh, you will need to realize that. Um, and um, because uh, if uh, people who want to be rich, get into medicine, they tend to do things that are, might not be in the best interest of their patients. Um, so uh, those are things I think are general uh, principles that you want to consider before you consider a career in medicine. Um, certainly there are other things, uh, work and life balance and so on and so forth. Uh, there are many, many factors, but uh, th these principles uh, you have to seriously look at to see whether you feel comfortable. Uh, those uh, are gonna be um, the, the basics of your life or career moving forward. Thank you for that. Um, I think for a lot of people uh, and students, um, one of the biggest uh, turnoffs from a, a profession in, in medicine would be just the commitment and like the whole process of med school completing, I don't even know how many years it is of med school and all like and how competitive it is so would you be able to talk a little bit about just uh, your experience and uh, with the challenge of getting into and completing medical school and especially the time commitment that it took yeah so um, medical you know education in this country is highly selective as you know um, you know, generally, uh, as you guys uh, about to enter college, you will finish a four-year college, 
and then you um, need to pass a entrance exam, the MCAT, um, and you would need to have certain uh, amount of credit in um, uh, different subjects uh, before you can apply for medical school. And then um, you will spend four years in medical school. Uh, you will graduate with a medical doctor degree or a DO degree. Then you apply for uh, postgraduate training, uh, which is called residency. Um, that generally specializes you in a particular field in medicine. Um, that residency can be anywhere between three years to seven years, the longest one. Um, um, and after that, you will become a uh, fully uh, capable practicing physician. Um, some people, after the shorter residency, go into, like what I did, uh, subspecialty, meaning a more specialized in their, in their particular specialty. Uh, that will be additional one to two years, of, uh, additional uh, one to three years of training. Um, so it is a very long journey. Um, but um, I forgot to mention the, uh, in my opinion, the best thing about being in medicine. Uh, in my opinion, um, there are very few professions in the world where you know you're doing something meaningful every day of your life, uh, helping people, and is uh, intellectually interesting and challenging if you look at it the right way, and you get paid very well. Uh, I think there are very few professions in, in the society that offer all those things. So there's big reward if indeed you're interested in medicine and you think it's the right career path for you. Uh, but uh, at the same time, as you said, it's a long journey. Um, many of the personal uh, enjoyments that your peers uh, will enjoy early on in their life are somewhat uh, constrained if you want to pursue a medical career. But I don't feel that I lost any uh, fun in my youth, uh, nor do I think that um, you know it, it was a it was a uh, it was uh, uh, a difficult or uh, unworthwhile uh, you know bearing my time, uh, so to speak. Uh, so it depends on um, whether you feel this is the right thing for you, and also. Uh, Throughout, if you're honest to yourself and uh, seeking truth, uh, always try to figure out how things work, uh, whether it's in science or in people, uh, you will find the journey rather interesting. In my particular case, I never felt it was too long. I never waited for it to end because at each stage, it was quite challenging and quite interesting, uh, uh, even to this day. That's what I said, for instance, if you look at medicine as a way to make money or become well off or rich, then you will feel that any time you spend before you finish your residency and making some real money, so to speak, is, uh, is a waiting uh, period. It's, it's time that you have to spend. If, if your mindset is that, then it becomes very long and grueling and chances are uh, some of you might drop. Um, on the other hand, if you think this is the right thing for you, 
and you're looking for that ultimate reward, as I mentioned. And uh, you are all very intelligent and uh, inquisitive uh, people. You will find the journey rather exciting and, and, and interesting. You mentioned that there's very little time, especially in your early years, like your 20s. I've heard people mention their 20s, like when you're in med school, your 20s are basically yeah. done. Did you, what, what was the most fun thing that wasn't medical school that you did in your 20s? Oh. Um, medical school, uh, uh, pretty heavy work. Uh, a lot of time consuming memorization, uh, uh, a, a lot of work. Uh, um, but you meet a lot of interesting people. <laughs> um, and uh, that, what, that is what some medical school at least strive for, uh, because physicians are not uh, diagnosing and treating machines. We're humans. And I, I would say uh, your medical acumen as a physician is only a small part of how effective you are in helping people. Uh, it's important, but it's not at all, uh, not at all uh, sufficient. Uh, you will have to be able to interact with people, uh, making friends with them, having them trust you, uh, whatever advice you give them, and they can actually stick to it and reap the benefit of not a medicine. Uh, that is not an easy thing to do. Um, so that's why medical school generally admit people who not only have the noble intention of helping people, but have the uh, uh, facility to do that. Um, generally speaking, people who have had some experience in life and have some um, well-rounded outlook about human relationships. Um, so we have a lot of interesting classmates in medical school. Uh, we had uh, one of my most memorable classmates uh, was a chef at Brulee, which is a very high-end uh, French restaurant in New York City for 10 years before he decided that's not for him. He was a fish chef, um, medical suit to him, is a walk in the park. He says, you know, uh, he, when he was a chef, he uh, wake up every morning at five o'clock to go to the restaurants and start doing work. And when the restaurant opens at night, he's very busy for five, six hours. He didn't get home until 12 or one. And he sleep for three, four hours. He get up again in another day, seven days a week. He says, medical school is nothing comparing with being a chef. Um, so we certainly have a fair part of having fish dishes in this apartment. Um, and, and those things, um, I think uh, it's, it's rare to have those um, that, you know, you have people who are very, very um, unique in their own ways, uh, all converge into this profession of medicine and make you broaden your perspective on life and certainly make you well prepared to deal with all sorts of people when you meet them as patients. Well, they, they told us about this, I, this thing similar to what you're saying um, when we were like talking about college with our counselors that, uh, that when you get to college, you're gonna meet people who are just gonna amaze you. Uh, and I'm sure it's just amplified by 10 when you get to medical school. Like, that People is are, true. Are even more amazing. Yeah. Another classmate's mine dropped out from medical school, not dropped out, but uh, deferred to a year. 
because uh, he was on the rolling team competing for the Olympic team. Uh, so he had to uh, defer for a year to competing the Olympics to to, to try uh, prepare for the trial for the Olympic team. Uh, he didn't make it. <laughs> uh, he came back a year later behind us <laughs> um, and, and finished medical school after that. Uh, and uh, um, but you know there are there are people who uh, who are just very unique uh, and um, very very um, interesting. Uh, they're all in this profession that deal with people. So the more you're exposed to these people, the more well-prepared you are. And then being around so many great people, does it make you feel elevated or does it sometimes make you feel, well, maybe not now, but, but back in that school, does it ever make you feel like sort of small in comparison? Oh, all the time. Okay. <laughs> you get intimidated just like, when yeah. you first came into Hunter uh, from, I guess, uh, seventh grade or whatever, sixth grade, you come in and you'll probably feel the same way when you go to college these days. Um, you know, um, you're all very young, intelligent, um, successful student. Uh, every step of the way you go on to a higher uh, level of training, you will find people are very qualified, very intelligent, very smart, very driven at the same time as well. Uh, naturally, you will feel um, somewhat self-conscious. Um, uh, I know most of my friends do. Uh, some of them look at me, feel intimidated. Um, but uh, I think that is part of your growing up. Um, you know, you, you, you are exposed to more and more uh, as you go. Uh, and you also find out more and more about yourself, uh, what you're capable of. Um, I would say um, that's a natural feeling you get to a different, uh, not the next level of your education. Um, but um, it's also very exciting at the same time. Uh, and you are elevated because once you are exposed to that level of intelligence and that level of devotion and level of dedication, um, and you can keep up, then you're more confident about yourself and uh, also prepare you for the next um, um, uh, stage or the next challenge, um, then you're more confident. Uh, uh, so I, I think uh, it is um, it is intimidating and exciting at the same time. Yeah, I think um, Adam and I could definitely relate to that a bit. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, moving away uh, from the topic of college and med school, at least temporary. Mm -hmm. um, so as you said before, uh, doctors are humans, which means that they often will make mistakes. And mm. after, as you mentioned, people have died under your care before. And I was wondering, um, how do you deal with uh, death or loss? And I think uh, this was a question Adam had, because um, I think he's considering going into uh, the medical profession. So how do you deal with, or how do some people deal with squeamishness um, as a doctor when mm. you're on a day-to-day -day basis? Mm. Mm. Yeah, that could be a deterrent to some people. Um, some people are afraid of blood. Um, uh, some people are, are um, just uh, not afraid, but are upset um, by suffering. Um, and uh, in particular of the, uh, the prospect of death. Uh, uh, it is never, um, 
an easy process. It's not, in my particular case, it wasn't as hard as my, some of my colleagues. Um, but uh, facing death, the first thing you have is nervousness because you have that patient's life on your hand. Um, you rely on your training and your desire to save someone uh, to get you through that process. Um, you don't necessarily think too much about the death itself at that moment, and you shouldn't. Uh, um, but when death finally transpired, uh, it is, um, there is a sense of failure on your part uh, that you always go back and try to figure out. And we always do that. Um, there's a, uh, a very good process in every medical institution called the uh, Morbidity and Mortality Conference, which is specifically talking about what went wrong in a particular case that physicians all gather around and voice their opinions on somebody's case. Um, whether you could have done this, you could have done that, whether you should do this or you should do that, or you shouldn't have done that. Um, it's a good process to improve our uh, general knowledge and skill um, and improve our capability of saving people. So that is a second uh, process. The third one is um, dealing with families. A lot of times, um, it, it's a it's a uh, it's a hard process uh, in the sense that, um, at least as physician, we always feel that we're responsible, uh, whether you truly are. Uh, but we have the sense that we're responsible for the death. Um, so you're naturally uh, self-conscious in dealing with the families. Um, but my overwhelming experience has been, if you have been honest and you have been uh, sincere in trying to save somebody's life, uh, there are more gratitude from the family than blame. Uh, um, if, if you are honest to people, um, you try your best, people sense that, people sense that. Um, and they, they are generally thankful. Um, so I have not found this last uh, experience uh, the difficult part. Uh, for most of my patients that uh, faced an unfortunate um, outcome, um, most of their families are rather grateful. Uh, even in cases where I probably felt I made a mistake. Uh, and I, I'd be honest with the family that at the moment, why I make those decisions. Um, there's always human I wouldn't say error, there, just like every decision in life, you, things turn out well, things turn out not so well. Um, so, uh, but if you're honest and sincere in your intention and your effort, I think people sense that and they wouldn't uh, take blame on you. Okay, so about a year and a half ago, the entire world changed and there was the COVID-19 pandemic and all of our lives were affected. We went on to online school, Zoom school, and I'm sure for you, your life was even more drastically affected than ours uh, as you were a practicing physician at the time and you had to treat COVID patients. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how that was for you, your experience, share any memorable anecdotes you have about that. Oh, that's, that's certainly memorable. So. Um... 
uh, as you all know, you know, March of last year, 2020, um, New York City was hard hit by the COVID pandemic. Um, and uh, from the middle of March, I remember March 16th until uh, end of May, um, uh, I was pulled um, to support uh, COVID floors, uh, taking care of sick COVID patients because there was a, um, um, such an overwhelming number of patients that came through the hospital. Uh, COVID uh, mostly caused uh, respiratory, meaning uh, breathing problems. So uh, initially pulmonologists, uh, the specialty that deal with uh, lung disease are um, the, on the front lines of taking care of patients, but they were overwhelmed within days. Uh, they couldn't uh, keep up. So the hospital deployed other specialty physicians to COVID force to help. And, uh, and there were immediately deaths. Um, so uh, the first group of physicians pulled were cardiologists because we do deal with death. Uh, we do deal with critical conditions. Um, so we were pulled. Um, so I was uh, taking care of COVID patients for two, a little over two months. Uh, it's a horrifying experience, uh, both on a professional level and a personal level. Uh, you know, at the beginning, um, uh, nobody knew too much of how serious the disease, how contagious it is, and, uh, but we have all seen how deadly it is. Um, and uh, I have to say, um, uh, we, we deal with death, um, but uh, dealing with death in mass, uh, that's probably the first experience. Uh, I have never uh, in the natural disaster catastrophe situation, some physicians have, uh, but I've never been there. Um, but in a pandemic situation, this is the first time I, I encounter um, deaths in math. Um, and that's, that's a, a horrible experience. Um, and also very little we could do. Um, we tried different medications that I remember now, all the medication we used during that two months uh, had since been proven to be not useful. <laughs> Um, the only thing that was useful was oxygen. So looking back, I was only the, that was the only thing I'm doing to the patient, uh, treating with oxygen, uh, which is, which is uh, rare in medicine that you have no other ways of helping the patient beyond one single means. Um, so uh, even to this day, I think uh, the treatment strategy for COVID disease is still very limited. So I couldn't stress enough to my patients how important to get it back vaccinated. Um, if you get COVID, no matter what age you are, the youngest patient I treated was 36 and was on a respirator. Um, so um, do not feel invincible. <laughs> uh, this is uh, by far uh, the most complex and, and deadly disease I have encountered, even with heart disease, because we have ways to save you. But it, COVID, very little that we could do. Uh, these days we have better uh, treatments, but uh, still it, it is limited. It is limited. And um, so that's from a professional level. From a personal level, um, um, when I get pulled, uh, I have to say I, I was nervous uh, because 
people had the experience of SARS. Now, this is a very similar, this is the same class of virus as SARS. SARS was very deadly with a mortality almost 40 percent, meaning one out of two chances you're going to die if you get exposed to it. So um, I made uh, 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 arrangements with my family, um, uh, you know, with the idea that I might not come back. Um, and um, I uh, uh, lived away with from the family for two months. Uh, you know, rented a small apartment so that I can go to work and not worry that I would spread the disease uh, to my family members. Um, and uh, colleagues, um, we were all very nervous for the first week. Um, uh, but I have to say, during that time, um, uh, I witnessed uh, the nobleness of medical professionals. Um, probably on a scale that I've never seen before. Um, despite people's fear, um, people work very well and people volunteer, uh, not knowing the risk of death to volunteer, um, even though when they're, uh, they're not pulled, they volunteer to come and work. Uh, it, it reminds me of, you know, I'm among a very uh, special group of human beings and, um, uh, and let you see uh, the nobility of uh, humanity. Um, That's humbling at the same time. It's very inspiring. Okay. Yeah, that, that is really, really inspiring. I, I definitely agree. Um, and this is related to COVID. Um, so it's kind of a funny story. So me and Adam, um, I remember this this random story from like a couple months ago. We were playing at the rec center or, or this basketball court in Central Park. And we got into a sort of argument with this, this random dude about COVID. And he was talking about how, oh, the pandemic is over or you don't need to wear masks. Yeah. Was just, yeah. That just reminded me of like how much just misinformation there is surrounding COVID and how like it's so vague, like the guidelines and everything. And I'm wondering from a physician um, perspective, why do you think there is so much misinformation surrounding COVID? Like, why is there so much disagreement? Like, oh, should it be six feet, three feet? Do you need to wear a mask after you're vaccinated? Like, I just, I've been hearing so many different things from so many different sides that it's just all really confusing. Yeah, um, that's a very good question. That's something that I, uh, I thought about a lot too. Uh, not just related to COVID, but our general medical information propagation, uh, how that is done, and what level of medical uh, knowledge that the general public has. Uh, um, it, it strikes me as one of the most undereducated part of our society. Uh, I, I, am, uh, I am puzzled uh, that uh, you just went through high school, you learned maths, uh, chemistry, physics, and all sorts of other scientific subjects, and maybe a little biology. Um, but we are not educating our uh, citizens about what human life, what anatomy, physiology, and disease states are about. Uh, this is quite puzzling to me. Um, so 
the society as a whole, um, I don't mean just our society, meaning the United States, I think overall across the globe, um, I think this is woefully lacking. Uh, we as human beings, with the events of medicine, we understand so much about um, the human condition, the human physiology, uh, physical being, but our general public are not educated about it. Uh, so actually, uh, I have decided that uh, in the last you know, lag of my career, uh, it's gonna be a significant part of my life to try to uh, educate the general public about medical knowledge. Uh, that's number one. Number two, I think uh, not only we're not doing enough, we're not doing in a right way. Uh, um, I have a theory why conspiracy theories spread faster than truth. Um, I think that's because conspiracy theories are simple to understand. Medical knowledge and knowledge of truth are generally too complicated. <laughs> Um, I think we err on the side of being accurate and sacrifice um, the aspect of um, understandable, understandability. Um, so, um, you know, people who do not uh, accept or adopt what we considered medical truth, um, I wonder if there's a big part of that is because we didn't make that truth understandable or easily understandable. So uh, if I were gonna be uh, doing medical education and I start to do that in my lectures to the general public, um, to make analogies, um, to make things understandable um, in their terms, not our medical terms. If you look at CNN, the medical experts, they're still, um, speaking mostly medical jargons without um, uh, highlighting the inner logics between their reasoning and deduction. Um, that I think is a major obstacle for the general public really to trust what we tell them. Uh, so uh, for some, someone like you and Adam, you are highly educated already and you are uh, very good at STEM, you understand science. But still, the, the information that are passed on to you uh, are in snippets and their logic is not immediately clear. Um, so I think it's understandable for people not to, um, not to follow our advice. <laughs> uh, especially, um, we didn't really explain um, uh, to the general public uh, signs about trial and error. Uh, I can never tell you what I say today is absolutely true uh, for forever. Uh, we always, you know, um, science deduction is about proving something wrong, not necessarily proving something right. Uh, and this is not generally understood. understood. So all of these, I think, uh, contribute to the confusion that people have. I want to move on to a sort of last topic, topic that I'm interested in. I think, Eric, we're, we're kind of on our way to wrapping up, right? We have like 10 more minutes, yeah. Okay. So, which is 
sort of the broad idea of social justice and how it relates to the medical field. Uh, I was listening a couple months ago to a podcast from the New England Journal of Medicine, and it was about uh, it was about cardiology, and they mentioned prevention and and how how there's a disparity between different demographics of people um like black and hispanic communities and and white communities in i guess their it was a couple months ago so i'm not remembering it basically but their preparedness like or their or their yeah but their preparedness to combat heart disease so i was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that um there's no question um that there is racial and socioeconomical disparity in the health conditions of the population. Um, we see this uh, on a daily basis. Um, I can't say I'm an expert uh, in the um, underpinning uh, factors that, that contribute to this. Um, but I, uh, you know, just my personal experience, um, um, there, there whether there are systematic things that we could do to change that, I am sure of that. Um, we deal with disease, which is the end result of many, many converging factors that, that, that make it so. Um, and a lot of this um, has to do with um, stress, to do with lifestyle. Uh, well, I'm talking about heart disease now. Uh, do with um, um, access to medicine or access to care. Um, and um, time that people have uh, in order to seek care. Now, none of this is related to medicine itself. It's all societal factors. Uh, um, it is true that I constantly uh, for some of my uh, socioeconomically disadvantaged patients, um, one of the things they always say is, you order this test, but I can't find time to do it uh, because they take three jobs. Um, and if they, um, if they take too much time off, they are at a risk of losing one of their jobs. Uh, you know, uh, I can't change that. There's, there's nothing I can change that. Um, what I try to do is I try to uh, bundle things that can be done at a single visit. Um, but I met with uh, constraints sometimes from the insurance company. They don't want to pay for too many things at the same time. Um, so all of these, uh, I think, contributed to the disparity that we see these days. Um, um, and also education as well. Um, another thing is, um, I think the way that at least healthcare is delivered in this country um, has something to do with that, um, the lack of uh, proper medical education of the general public. Um, because we as doctors uh, in a, a fee-for-service world, uh, fee-for-service just means that we get paid for what we do. So, um, you know, generally speaking, we don't get paid uh, speaking to our patients about their general well-being, about disease prevention. Uh, 
there's no, no such payment uh, uh, for that. But we do get paid if we uh, do, do a test or do operation or do a procedures. So there's a general tendency that we try to get through the day um, trying to finish what we need to do in order to diagnose or treating a disease. Um, we're left with very little incentive or time or energy to really educate the patients. Um, so, uh, and it's also a very inefficient way of, if you really want to um, change people's mind and change people's behavior, a one or two minutes uh, pep talk in the office um, probably is not the way to do it. Um, so uh, I think um, it's a very complex issue, Adam, uh, how these disparities became um, what they are. Uh, I forgot to mention, so uh, this medical education thing, as you can imagine, uh, it may take longer time to speak to a college graduate about their condition. It will take a, a, a longer time to try to make somebody who has a high school education uh, um, uh, you know, level about their disease than somebody who is a um, you know, graduate, um, graduate student. Uh, so, and so because of the different education level, because of different socioeconomic status, because of different ethnic group, ethnic group I forgot to mention, language barrier is, is a significant part of this. So all of this contributed to that. But in order to do real good, uh, in my opinion, uh, it doesn't take just people's attention to this disparity. Uh, it needs some coordinated effort, uh, also all uh, different uh, uh, parts of society needs to uh, attack this. Uh, and you have to identify the goal first. Um, I think, you know, you have to say, this is not right, but you can't just say, um, uh, we are gonna fix one thing and it's gonna change. And you have to stay on it sustainably um, to, to really uh, change a lot of different ways how we do things. And that's where the, uh, your generation uh, come, come along. Uh, the different generations should look at things differently. And how we're doing it you know, today should not be how we're doing it tomorrow. Uh, certainly, certainly education is huge for cardiovascular disease where prevention is so important. And if you educate, then you can maybe change people's lifestyles. Are you, are you planning, you, you talked about how you, how you want to have more of a role in educating the public. Do you have, what, what plans you have for like the rest of your career? Are you going to go do more talks to certain communities? What's your, what are you going to do? Yeah, so, so I am the chief of cardiology for a large multi-specialty group called Render, which you see in the background. Um, so uh, we have a integrated health uh, delivery system where uh, internists and specialists do work side by side, uh, taking care of patients together. So, um, uh, you know, there are certainly different paths I can take, uh, but given that he is still uh, a very busy practitioner, uh, the focus of my current effort is um, on, you know, educating my colleagues in internal medicine, meaning your primary care physicians, and also uh, through them, um, 
um, you know, organize education opportunity for our uh, general public, especially our patients. Um, because as I said, it's terribly inefficient for every single one of us to spend one or two minutes of pep talk on, on the individual patient. It will be much more efficient if we uh, build a network or infrastructure to education our patients in mass. Um, uh, so, so that's my current effort. Uh, I certainly think that uh, if we're successful in doing that, especially as far as the material is concerned, uh, I want to make them easily understandable using a lot of, a lot of uh, everyday life analogies uh, to illustrate a medical point. Uh, if 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 that concept is proven, uh, certainly uh, I I will be looking at a bigger platform. Uh, whether it's social media or otherwise, in order to reach a bigger audience. But uh, I'm not sure I can do that, and I'm not sure I'll have the time and energy to do that. Uh, but I, I hope I can you know, engage in this and have enough people to see uh, the need and the benefit of it, uh, so that if I can't do it uh, as a single person, hopefully I can, uh, I can nudge a group of people try to do the same thing. Uh, it's one of my... Uh, strongest defectors is my son, who says, I know nothing about social media, and there's no way that people will listen to what I say. They will rather listen to a music video uh, than some, something about heart disease. We'll see. I think, luckily, you have a whole generation of people who would love to assist you on social media and get your message across. Oh, that and would for, be great. I mean, you definitely, if you put that message out and you definitely would get people who want to help. Uh, and just for our listeners, render, R-E-N-D-R, plug, we're plugging render. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay, so I just wanted to ask one uh, final question just because we are running a little bit short on time and I want to respect your time, Dr. Yang. But um, so uh, going back to the topic of social inequity and racial and socioeconomic inequity. So it's, I think we can all agree that it's a really big problem that is prevalent in pretty much all facets of life. Um, as you said, it's a, it's a societal problem, not something that's specific to medicine. But since you are um, an expert in, in the field of medicine, um, and I, I don't want you to, I don't want to ask you like, how can you solve like inequity? Cause that's just, everyone's been trying to, it's just, it's, right. I was, wondering what is like one um one like concrete uh policy that you would want to see implemented that you think could be beneficial towards the goal of reducing inequity hmm. in the field of medicine hmm. um there's so many things that we need to do um because uh, a lot of my patients are ethnic patients um you know, um, I think one of the uh, things that we could do is improve the access of care. Um, by that, I don't mean um, that we have enough physicians or we have enough clinics or we have enough hospitals in a certain neighborhood. Um, but because of the way um, that people's lives are structured, uh, as I mentioned, many uh, economically or socioeconomically disadvantaged um, a group of patients, uh, they just don't have the time. Um, and, and we need to um, make uh, access to care easier to them. 
And uh, if anything that turned out positive during this pandemic is the discovery of you know, telemedicine, um, that we could do a lot with telemedicine. And um, um, you know, during the pandemic, many uh, insurance companies um, actually designated certain payments to telemedicine uh, on par with in-person uh, visits. And some of them have pulled back uh, on this um, after the easing of the pandemic. Um, uh, I will hope that you know, there will be concerted effort on a societal level uh, to try to leverage technology to improve the care for socioeconomically disadvantaged group. Um, and from uh, um, you know, payments to, uh, to infrastructure at clinics or hospitals where uh, dedicated teams would dedicate, you know, devote to uh, telemedicine care um, and um, uh, to technology improvements. Um, uh, I think this is a big opportunity. Um, you know, people can, um, uh, you know, doctors work on shifts. Uh, we, we, we should, you know, think about ways uh, where we can, you know, do telemedicine after working hours uh, for our patients. Um, you know, uh, to, to, to really improve the level, you know, the, the, the access of care to our patients. And that just not uh, our medical profession, that's a society, um, you know, effort. Um, but, um, you know, it, it takes a little bit of planning and take a little coordination and how that, uh, uh, how that is gonna be carried out and who is gonna be calling the shots. Um, you know, um, I think uh, federal level, state level, um, I hope the health commissioners, uh, they can uh, lead the way and uh, rally different, um, you know, um, different constituents uh, in, this, uh, in this field and try to really do something concrete and improve the access of care for our patients. Yeah. Uh, that, that was great. Um, unfortunately, uh, that is all the time we have for today. Um, but thank you once again, Dr. Yang, for coming on and sharing your immense knowledge and unique story with us. It was truly a pleasure talking with you and hopefully your experience gives listeners a better understanding of what a career in the field of medicine is really like and if it is something for them.